0: Welcome to the ProvCast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor, Drew Griffin. Sam Bramback has a long and storied career in uh, the U.S. government. He served as a congressman and senator and governor of the state of Kansas from 1995 all the way up until 2018 when he was appointed by President Donald Trump as the ambassador at large for international religious freedom, an office that he himself uh, created when he sponsored as a senator the International Religious Freedom Act in 1998. He serves as the ambassador in the Office of International Religious Freedom at the State Department that has the mission of promoting religious freedom as a core objective of U.S. foreign policy. They serve to monitor religious persecution and discrimination worldwide, recommend and implement policies in respective regions and countries, and develop programs to promote religious freedom globally. Ambassador Brownback, welcome to the ProfCast.
1: Thanks, Drew. It's a pleasure to join you, and I'm uh, glad to uh, be able to discuss this topic with you on a podcast like this. Uh, these are important sort of discussions so people can get more thoroughly seeped in what's going on and and hopefully have... Um, uh, some useful thoughts put forward that can help shape some thinking of people that could uh, encourage them.
0: No, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you. I mean, you you occupy a uh, kind of unique position, I, I think, in, in the U.S. government, and the U.S. State Department, in that, um, you know, in a, in a very kind of secular age and in an increasingly kind of secular international environment, uh, one that sees a, a great deal of increase in kind of religious persecution uh, abroad in a variety of uh, different nations. Um, you have this office that is tasked with advocating for religious freedom and advocating for religious ideas, advocating for uh, human rights. And um, I I want you to talk a little bit about, kind of uh, before we kind of jump into our main conversation, um, the importance that you see of of religion in the public square and the importance that you see for religious freedom uh, internationally, of why why it's important that the United States has this unique uh, position.
1: Well, the founders wouldn't have had it any different. Uh, they felt like, you know, we're, we're going to have this country of maximum freedom. And so it's got to be personal governance that takes place. And we're not going to have a church either. We're not going to have a church of the United States like every place they had all come from, because uh, we don't like that idea. We don't want the government running church. But we've got to have people of faith, and they've got to be out there. Uh, so, the idea that you bring your faith into the public square was, was really central to the founding of the country, and it's been central to the ongoing of the, the culture of the United States and what we, uh, what we project. Uh, while there may be more secularization in the West, uh, 80% of the world is religious, uh, and you don't get places uh, with other countries if you don't understand their theological backdrop, uh, what really forms their thinking. Uh, and that's something that we've just got to do more and more. When this bill first passed 20 years ago to create this position and really to try to push State Department to engage the faith community more, there was quite a bit of resistance in the foreign policy community going, yeah, we don't, we don't know that that's a good idea uh, to do that. We don't like mixing church and state. We don't agree with that, obviously. That's in our founding principles. Uh, but then as they engaged it, they were going, yeah, how how do you really understand and engage a community unless you do engage them at this level? Uh, And I even had um, one one long-time Middle East negotiator tell um, uh, a man I was working with that if they'd engaged the faith community decades ago on the Middle East peace process, we would have had peace by now. Uh, you've, You've got to get these fundamental players engaged and thoughtfully engaged, or you're unlikely to get very far with an entire country or civilization. That's uh, one of the reasons why Providence is, exists, this uh, journal, this magazine, uh, is to
0: uh, equip the American mind to engage the real world. And what we see as part of that real world is the fact that there is a, a, a religious um, component that informs everything that's going on, that there's there is there's this uh, kind of undercurrent, understory that underlies every news story that comes out, every political situation, um, that people are informed by their religious beliefs. And, and too often, you know, we've seen uh, in the um, yeah, kind of secular uh, environment and in the government and, the, and even in, sometimes in State Department, they will look at a situation and they will overlook some of the ethnic and religious realities that exist uh, when they're coming up against um, particular policy decisions. And oftentimes they do so kind of at the detriment to the people that they're trying to help. Um, so one of the things I've noticed that, um, uh, that you've done kind of an outreach, and last year you organized the first ever kind of ministerial that uh, brought in around eight, 80 countries um, into uh, ministers from 80 countries in here to the United States uh, to gather and and to discuss um, kind of uh, common ground and uh, um, to talk a little bit
1: about the um,
0: that ministerial and the upcoming one. You have a second one scheduled for this year.
1: What well, was on uh, advancing religious freedom? It was the first ever that's been done. Uh, we brought in foreign ministers from around the world. Uh, and uh, we discussed about how to move this, this topic forward, because virtually every constitution in the world of countries in the world guarantees religious liberty. And most countries have signed on to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which guarantees religious freedom. Uh, yet most of the world lives in a religious persecution or religious-restricted environment. So it's one of those things that, yeah, yes, I have this right, but I don't experience this right. Uh, because this government uh, favors the majority religion over the minority religion, or they don't like any religion, or they lock up people of particular uh, sects of faith, uh, so that there's just not that freedom of religion that people get to practice in most places. Uh, To date, we had done mostly kind of a name and shame process, saying, okay, this is a bad country, that's a bad country on it. What we're really trying to engage now is to say, countries, this is in your best interest to do this. More religious freedom means less terrorism. More religious freedom means more economic growth. Uh, that these are fundamentals and we have the data on it that this will, that we can show this to you, that this is how it actually works. Uh, and so we're really trying to bring more nations along that this is in their fundamental best interest. Uh, and, uh, and we're getting more interest uh, in it. Plus, just you, frankly, the level of killings of people of faith around the world, whether it's the mosque in New Zealand or uh, the uh, churches in Sri Lanka or uh, people of faith, Christians in Nigeria, the numbers are huge, uh, and they're regular, and they're all over the place. So that more people are saying, what can we do to protect this faith community uh, in, um, uh, in our country that we're seeing uh, so much of this persecution and killings of people of faith take place. So with the, it seems there's a, a in, uh, there's a rise
0: in anti-Semitism, there's a rise in Christian persecution, there's a rise in even uh, Islamic persecution of uh, Muslims like the Uyghurs in China. It seems to be, uh, regardless of the religion, that there's a uh, an effort on the part of, of various states and various interested parties to... Um, Uh, tap down the religious expression, what do you see from the vantage point that you have is probably like the, you know, one of the main areas of concern, either geographically or um, uh, one of the main um, religions that you see that may be uh, particularly under threat at this time?
1: Unfortunately, virtually every religion uh, uh, is under threat somewhere in the world. Uh, Every religion that is a majority someplace is a minority someplace else, that as the world has gotten smaller and more people move, you've had more of the the interaction of faith uh, that's taking place, so a culture that's a dominantly Buddhist culture... Uh, is interacting with more people that are Muslims and Christians now that they hadn't seen before, or a dominantly Hindu culture is now interacting uh, more with different people of faith. And what's taking place then is then as those interactions occur, uh, there oftentimes is this fuel for uh, an abuse, uh, a persecution, Politicians want to tap into I want to, the favor of the majority of the faith here in this country. So sometimes that involves persecuting the minority faith. Uh, some governments say, you know, look, we are just about uh, this. Uh, wing, Iran, of Shia Islam, if you're in the other branches of Islam, we're going to persecute you. If you're a Christian, if you're a Baha'i, we're going to persecute you. Uh, We even uh, will put death sentences on people. So you're just seeing this really interaction of faiths, uh, uh, almost a war on religions in various places, but the government's answer to that needs to be uh, that we're going to stand up for religious freedom, and we're gonna protect people of faith, not pick a favored one, a winner or a loser, not persecute all of them, just we're gonna protect this right. That's the safe space for governments. It's also the one that gives you the best opportunity to have less terrorism and more economic growth. So I wanna switch gears a little bit and talk about
0: uh, Christian missionaries and the impact that they have on U.S. foreign policy. At Providence, we're doing an upcoming issue on uh, uh, Christian missions and U.S. foreign policy, and there is a, there's a long history there. There is there have been missionary there were missionaries long before there was the United States. Some of the first people in the United States um, uh, that began to populate it from Europe were from uh, were missionaries. Uh, so there's there's a long history and kind of tradition of even after the United States was was founded uh, that uh, missionaries are, are going... Going out of the United States. Currently, there's 140,000 missionaries abroad. Um, about 64,000 of those, I believe, are American missionaries, and they're going to almost every country um, on, on the planet. And it, it they are put in unique positions, right? And oftentimes, they're in the very countries that you're talking about and the very cultures that you're talking about that are hostile to religion, that are hostile to Christianity, maybe in particular. That's where these missionaries are going. It's where they're living. It's where they're taking their families. And they have to exist in these hostile cultures which oftentimes puts them in a very uh you know precarious position are they open about their faith if they're a missionary in China and their church could be bulldozed down or they could be thrown in prison do they walk around and say openly you know that they are a missionary or do they lie to the you know Chinese government there's a there's a tension there that exists uh, between you know how do you how much of what is caesar's do you render under caesar and you know how much do you kind of render under god and i want to as you're a christian you're explicitly and and kind of proudly um, a Christian, it's part your faith is a public kind of part of your life, and um, so I'm, I'm interested, kind of, in your perspective with the office that you hold um, to just talk a little bit about, if you can, um, how missionaries maybe could best uh, balance uh, the interests of, or how does the U.S. rather, you know, how does the U.S. balance uh, Amer- an American's right to religious freedom? Uh, to engage in foreign missions uh, with the, you know, physical and political
1: hazard that they may entail? You know, I, I don't know that I can uh, offer good counsel on that because each situation is so different and dynamic uh, itself, and it, it'll depend on whatever various situation is. What we believe as a government in this position is that people have the right to practice their faith or practice no faith at all. We believe that's a universal. It's a God-given right. It applies to everybody in the world. That involves also the right to be uh, to proselytize. It involves a right to change one's faith. Uh, it uh, uh, the, these are fundamental rights that you you have the right at all times to choose to do with your own soul what you choose to do, uh, and that that's a that's a right that governments uh, should protect. Every, indeed they state in their own constitution that they will protect. Uh, so that missionaries uh, that they go out and they choose a place that they decide to go, and their their supporters are uh, backing of them. That's their right. Uh, that's their right to do that. Uh, that right should be protected uh, for people to do. Uh, there have been hazards associated with uh, missionaries since the since the very since Paul went on his first missionary journeys and was shipwrecked and stoned and thrown in jail and. You know, unfortunately, those stories don't seem to change a whole lot over time, and you you have more Christian persecution taking place today than any time in the history of humanity. So this is kind of part and parcel, really, uh, of it. I I wish it weren't so. I wish we were just in a free and open world that people would respect one another, respect one another's religion uh, as well, and um, and and. You have healthy dialogues about it, just where the, that each could prosper by virtue of the exchange of the thought. We're not there. Uh, I, uh, I hope in this office some way that we can be a small part of getting us closer to there. Mm. Oftentimes, missionaries,
0: if they're they're placed in, in foreign um, situations, foreign governments, they're, they're viewed by those governments and by their cultures, um, you know, as uh, Americans, um, as maybe sometimes they're viewed as maybe pawns of, of U.S. interest, or maybe they're, they can often be times be viewed of, of, as maybe like foreign agents, uh, kind of at worst. Um what can like the, uh, the U.S. do, if anything, to kind of disabuse foreign regimes from these perceptions while still advocating kind of religious freedom? Like what can we do to say, hey, you know, these people are on their own. They have a right to do what they, they're doing. And it's, you know, they're not necessarily they're representing the U.S. government.
1: Well, the U.S. government does not sponsor missionaries, right. period. End of story. It's against the Establishment Clause. We don't do that uh, and we're not going to do that. So, I mean, that's just in and of itself on the surface a clear statement of what, uh, what we do and what we will not fund. We also believe in this universal right of human rights of religious freedom uh, and that uh, we have missionaries come to the United States from many countries around the world. We don't block them uh, from coming here. They still got to get a visa like everybody else, and so they may have some, some issues associated with that, but we don't block religious visas from any faith. Uh, from coming to the United States, and that's, that's as it should be. And we think that there's a healthy dynamism that's offered to a society when you open up that thought space. Uh, I call it a release of spiritual capital uh, that you release into a society. I remember being in Uzbekistan and meeting uh, with a pastor there that had planted a church, and Uzbekistan is uh, dominantly uh, Islamic. And there was a guy as I was leaving that had been an alcoholic that was there working, was off of alcohol, um, and was uh, doing positive things in the culture. And I, I remember saying to some of the leadership, I said to the president of the country, that's part of the release of spiritual capital I'm talking about. Here was a guy that was an alcoholic that's, that's still recovering. He'll always be in that position, but he's not drinking anymore, and he's doing things that are positive for the society. And here somebody took him in and helped him get in that position? And what about the innumerable hospitals or schools that are started by missionaries, or the welfare association and help, or the prison reform efforts that have been done by missionaries? All of that's a release of spiritual capital that your government doesn't have to do and probably can't afford to do that's coming in from other places. You know, praise be to God. Uh, this uh, This is something I've I look and think, well, that's that's something as a government official and former governor I want to see more of uh, in my state, not less of. So in 1998,
0: uh, you co-sponsored the International Religious Freedom Act, uh, which created the office and the position that you now hold. And so you, pre- you participate in the creation of this office. And uh, you're now holding the position of ambassador at large, you're the fifth, I believe, ambassador at large. Um, and so 21 years later, um, how do you think, since since you've been following this kind of from inception, like how do you think uh, the issue of international religious freedom has evolved, like over this time? And do you think that this office, as, as each subsequent ambassador at large has kind of taken it, is, has fulfilled kind of its mission? Do you see it growing? you seeing it fulfilling more of what you, the vision that you had for it, like 21 years ago?
1: Um, it's It's been a, a roller coaster ride would be my estimation of it. I think right after the fall of the Berlin Wall and when communism, and the Soviet Union came down, there was this burst of religious liberty and freedom in a, that part of the world in particular, but much of the world. And there wasn't really this persecution of it. In uh, part of the um, unfortunate uh, aspect of democratization in a number of countries, uh, you get uh, a lot of times uh, political figures that uh, use their favor for the majority religion to oppress a minority religion. Uh, when all religions should have the the right guarantee, this should be a minority right that's protected. So I think we've got a lot of work to do. Um, I think people are more aware about it uh, in the world. I do think there is more harm being expressed openly, whether people being locked up in jail for blasphemy laws or missionaries kicked out of uh, countries or even killed. Uh, I think there's, and there's the Christian persecution, but the persecution of all types of faith has grown. So we've got our job cut out for us. I do think finally we're starting to engage other nations on this in a constructive way that they are starting to see okay okay i'm starting to see your point on this that there is value to us as a nation to open up this space uh, and it's it's my hope that that can cause those gates of religious liberty to fly open around the world what are some of the measures that that you are either a see uh,
0: that you see are being taken, or that you would advocate should be taken to kind of add some some teeth to uh, uh, some of these goals, right? Oftentimes, there's, if there's a criticism, uh, and you kind of um, pointed to it earlier in the interview yourself, of this uh, kind of calling out uh, what nations are doing is bad, or labeling labeling them as uh, countries of particular concern, or different kind of the terminology uh, that is used, uh, but and yet the you know persecution remains, or an or it gets worse. Uh, you know, what steps can the United States do in a, in a, you know, maybe a practical way to maybe, instead of just naming and claiming it, like put some teeth to it and 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 see some some pressure, kind of leverage to, to see this persecution cease.
1: We can put sanctions uh, with countries of particular concern. Uh, we can put visa restrictions on individuals that do practice religious persecution as government officials. Uh, those things are starting to happen. Uh, We can call it out more. We can put carrots with it as well, provide development aid and assistance to religious minorities so that we actually target the religious minorities that are being persecuted, like what uh, has happened in northern Iraq where the Christians and the Yazidis were kicked out and run out by ISIS. Uh, But we've put development aid into that to see that those communities can move back. Uh, whereas before we'd just mostly say well I guess the answer is for you to immigrate to Europe or the United States um, I, so th- those things are starting to happen those th- those issues are starting to move forward as we try to get both both carrots and sticks because uh, to me you got to use both of it there at the end of the day a country has to see this as in their best interest it's one of the things I look at in China today where they had been a, a, a kind of back and forth a little bit, but a more open religious society up until uh, really two, three years ago, and then the Communist Party took over the regulation of religion, and they have hammered down on all faiths. They're at war with the Muslims, they're at war with the Buddhists, they're at war with the Christians, they're at war with Falun Gong, but it is a war they will not win, and there are consequences to them attacking all of these faiths uh, on their own home terrain, that are not good uh, for their projection around their world or for the acceptance of uh, the Chinese Communist Party ideology in other places uh, outside of China. So you bring up China, and I think it's interesting as, as
0: technology changes and as kind of um, uh, technological development uh, increases, um, persecution is changing too. And and it's not so much even like what we've seen in the past of bulldozing down a church or burning Bibles or jailing people. It's uh, the use of artificial intelligence, the use of uh, technical uh, means to um, segment out and, and segregate uh, religious uh, individuals and religious minorities. Uh, from the marketplace, from the ability to travel. Like, uh, what is the office doing? Is the office monitoring at all like the, the changing face of religious persecution uh, in, in terms of how it's it's coming into the information age and coming into like the technological age? Um, what's, wh- as you kind of look out into the future and look out into this post, what, what do you see as kind of some of the coming threats coming down the line in that regard? And then it, what is the, your office in particular kind of doing to um, uh, elucidate those problems and also address them.
1: It's This is my biggest concern. Uh, I, it, it's, I had a, somebody over from the Holocaust Museum uh, and the work that they're doing, and they're, they were saying, you know, in the future the face of oppression is going to be different than in the past. Uh, instead of a lot of dead bodies, which unfortunately there's still a lot of, or a lot of people locked up in jail, it's going to be whole sections of society marginalized uh, to where they can't get an apartment, they can't keep a job, but they get run out of a job, these kids can't go to school, they can't buy and sell. Um, they uh, And unfortunately, you've got these systems, and the Chinese are perfecting them, uh, of um, of that sort of observation, where you've got surveillance cameras all over, particularly churches and mosques, but also just the, the basic marketplace. Um, and I was, when I was in China, they were advertising and with some fanfare that you could get on a bus now and by artificial intelligence, the bus recognizing the camera, the bus recognizing your face, it would hit your credit card in three seconds and you get on the bus. Uh, don't have to do anything. Uh, this is a great invention, right? You know, I just walk on the bus and I don't have to carry money around and I don't have to put it in the machine and it goes down and this and that. But you also look at that and you go, yeah, what if they don't like you? What if you're one of the minorities that they—what if you're a Muslim and they don't want to have Muslims uh, expanding in this country? The face of religious persecution is going to be—it's going to be more subtle. It's going to be more marginalization. Uh, I think it can be one of the most uh, difficult times for people of faith that they may ever experience because of its ubiquitous nature that it's going to have and and your difficulty of you to be able to function in this society.
0: Do you see, uh, you know, as the administration has, has changed and um, uh, the president has a, a, a unique and, and a new and kind of different way of uh, engaging uh, in the world and, uh, than his predecessor, um, do you see um, new challenges or new opportunities um, abroad as you look at uh, the way in which the United States is perceived? Uh, do you think it's a, uh, um, yeah, there are new difficulties or new challenges or new opportunities?
1: Uh, I think it all probably goes together. This this president's a man of action uh, and in that sense can force and get more things done. Andrew Brunson was a pastor who was in prison in Turkey, and this president put sanctions on uh, – put tariffs on steel and aluminum coming in from Turkey to the United States uh, until Brunson was let, uh, let go. Uh, that was a huge move. Uh, nope president before has done anything like it. For one individual, he tanked an entire currency, the Turkish currency, till they let him go. Um, uh, so there's, there's, when you take that sort of strong action, then the rest of the world pays attention to what's happening. Now, you know, there can be pushback against it as well, but I, I think you've got a president that will act, uh, and that forces things and moves it on forward.
0: So um, as we kind of wrap up, I just want to ask, like, uh, what... Not only is what can Christians do, but even just people who are who are concerned, people who believe in the right of religious liberty and religious freedom, uh, what can they do? To uh, that's often a question that we hear uh, when you see the news reports and you see churches that are bombed and mosques that are shot up, and and you see the rise of you know re- religious persecution. Oftentimes, people here in the United States feel helpless and they feel like you know there's just very little that, that can kind of can be done, uh, and it seems to be an intractable problem that never seems to go away. What can can, what advice would you give or what can, um, you know, kind of hope that you can, can you give or, you know, that of what people here in the States that care about this issue can do?
1: I'd, I'd say I'd tell people to go local and go small. Uh, the beauty about the United States is there are people here from all over the world, uh, and the, the the faith community in the United States in particular is globally connected to far-flung places. Um, I travel around the United States, and I'm amazed at the different pockets of various communities uh, that, that, are, uh, that are around. Well, find somebody in your local community uh, that is uh, working in Nigeria, or is in India, or has been back and forth to Rwanda, uh, and uh, say, what, what's going on there? And find out if there's persecution there, and if there is, see what you can do to help out. Maybe it's you can help rebuild a church. There's a diocese in uh, Arizona that's helping rebuild some churches and houses in northern Iraq that were destroyed by ISIS. Uh, They made a personal connection to that area. You can build a house in northern Iraq for $20,000. They're raising the money there to help them rebuild. Uh, And there's plenty of situations like that in the world. Sri Lanka and the number of churches that were blown up there and the, the... the health care and the needs of the individuals and their families that, that survived. Um, you know, Reach out uh, to people like that and and find them, and they're there. Invite them to your church or your civic group to speak. Have them tell them what, what took place, uh, how can we help, and, and just go local and go small uh, with it. You can advocate with your members of Congress, because the U.S. Congress is— Uh, still one of the key places in the world where people seek to have their religious freedoms raised. Uh, And so they can advocate with them on a particular uh, case as well and push push in the uh, uh, administration to do it. Um, And then if you feel particularly bold yourself, travel there yourself. Uh, Go and find out or get with a delegation that's going somewhere. Organize one yourself. Uh, People can travel uh, now and do. And I have go to many of these places, and it's it's you've got to be careful. Uh, but you, there's nothing really like getting the taste and the smell and the feel yourself on the ground and seeing what you can do there to help out. My guest
0: today has been Ambassador-at-Large Sam Brownback. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at IRF underscore Ambassador. Ambassador, thank you for being here.
1: My pleasure, Drew.
0: Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.